Savior and, and our Lord. Father, thank you that in the fullness of time you sent him to be born of a virgin, born of a woman, and that in the appointed time and in the appointed way, he gave himself an offering and a sacrifice for us that we might be redeemed. Thank you, Father, that on the third day you raised him up and he appeared and spoke and taught and then he ascended and now he's seated there at your right hand. We look up, look up to you, Father, and come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that you would help us to worship you now. For we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, back in the ancient Roman world, 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Paul. Paul was in jail for the crime of preaching the gospel. He was going around everywhere telling people about the good news of life in Christ. And that was declared illegal, and so he was in jail. But being a Roman citizen, he had his day in court, and one day he was in court, and the, the judge was actually a, a regional king, a guy named Festus. And uh, here's some of the exchange that went on between Paul and Festus. So Paul was telling him, hey, the Old Testament part of the Bible, the part that looked to Jesus but came before Jesus, predicted Jesus was going to suffer and be buried and be raised. And Paul's preaching about the resurrection to him. Here's how it goes. You could follow along below me there. Paul said, the Messiah must suffer, that's what the Old Testament taught, and being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So Paul's telling this regional king, Festus, uh, the Old Testament foretold, foretold this, Jesus was going to suffer and die, and then he would be raised from the dead. Well, at that, Festus spoke, and so we read, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So basically, the king said, you're crazy, man. You're crazy. You can't believe in a resurrection. No sane person can believe in a resurrection. Paul answered, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. I am not crazy. I am speaking true and rational words. The title of this sermon is Reasons to Believe. Reasons to Believe. Why would any educated person believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Why would any intelligent people believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rose from the dead? Why in this age of science would anybody believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Well, there are plenty of people who believe that, and I'm going to introduce you to a, a couple of them. And uh, I want you to know, let me give you this statement first. There are logical, rational, compelling reasons to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Let me tell you about one. His name is Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a really bright young man. He uh, went to college and got a degree in journalism, went to work for a newspaper, and then he uh, went to, you've heard of a place called Yale. He went to Yale Law School and got a law degree on top of that. So he's got journalism, investigative journalism, and a law degree. 
And then he became the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. So any legal, legal matters, any legal articles, he got to edit them and make sure they were correct. So his job was um, studying things to find out what's really true and then reporting on it. So life was good, and he was married, and they had a nice family and all that. And then one day, the absolutely unthinkable thing happened. And it just turned his life upside down. His wife became a Christian. His wife became a follower of Jesus Christ. And he hated it. He couldn't stand it. He was embarrassed by it. I have this wife who was a believer. He was an atheist. So here's what he did. He, uh, he decided he was going to... Um, he was going to try and, and study this whole thing so he could get his wife back. Let me give you the quote about getting his wife back. He said, I, I, I was mad and wanted my wife back. I decided that the resurrection was the key to this whole thing, and I set out to prove it was all nonsense. So this man with a Yale Law degree, this man with an undergraduate degree in journalism, set out to study and disprove the resurrection. So he studied and studied and read and read and compared and compared, sifted through books and literature, old and new, uh, read people on both sides of the issue. Here are the arguments against the resurrection. Here are the arguments for the resurrection. Here's what the people who deny it say. Here's what the people who agree with it say. And he took a year and seven months studying his brains out to get his wife back and disprove the resurrection. And at the one year and seven month point, he became a Christ follower. He believed. He discovered it's all true. He discovered there are reasonable, compelling, logical uh, arguments for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lee Strobel believed. By the way, if you want to read more about what he studied and how it went for him, he wrote a book that's a summary, a distillation of his studies. It's called The Case for Christ. I'd highly recommend it to you. Why? Would any intelligent, rational person believe that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead? What made Lee Strobel completely change his mind and decide, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and I'm going to be one of his followers? Before I answer that, we're going to try and answer that today, let me tell you about another man who, like Mr. Strobel, was also very intellectually gifted, very brilliant young man. His name was Saul and he lived about 2,000 years ago. He went to the equivalent of the Harvard of our land in his day and graduated top of his class, was known to be like a rising star in his nation, brilliant guy, brilliant mind and all that. And he was, he was fiercely anti-Christian. He was fiercely opposed to Jesus Christ. Here's how he's described by someone who knew him, Acts 8 and verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. That's what this Saul was doing. Here's how he described himself later in life, looking back at those days. He says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, 
and many of the saints, or the Christians, I shut up in prison. So he's going from house to house. Are you a Christian? Yes, I follow Jesus Christ. Dragging them out of the house, putting them in jail. This literally happened. This is history. It's what he was doing. And he said, I put them in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, there was a death sentence. There was a death penalty. Christians are being persecuted and put to death for following Jesus Christ. And when they were put to death, Saul says, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That Saul did not like the the name of Jesus Christ. He was not a good friend to the church of Jesus Christ. He was trying to destroy the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. He believed. He saw the resurrected Lord, and he believed. And he became what is probably, arguably, the greatest advocate of biblical Christianity ever. He probably planted more churches than anybody planted ever. He wrote more of the Bible than any other New Testament author wrote. He became one of the most important figures in all of Christian and maybe even human history. And what changed him? He discovered that there was a compelling reason to believe in the resurrection. He saw Jesus alive. Do you know what that would be like for a man like Paul to become, or Saul, to become a Paul, they changed his name, and to become a Christ follower, that would be like, suppose tomorrow morning the New York Times runs a huge font headline that says, we were wrong, and then in a little bit smaller print it says, we've decided we love Donald Trump, and you all should vote for Donald Trump. What are the chances of that happening? And Nancy Pelosi does an editorial and says, I've totally changed my mind. Chuck Schumer steps in and says, yeah, I'm all for him now. How many of you think that will ever happen? Like, what kind of parallel universe would that have to be? How many would have ever thought that Saul, who hated the name of Jesus, threw Christians in jail, persecuted them to the death, cast his vote, kill that man, kill that Christ follower, who would have ever thought he's going to become the greatest advocate of the faith that maybe the planet has ever known? I'm going to put this question on the screen for you. What changed him? What changed him? He found there was compelling evidence for the resurrection. He saw the resurrected Lord. It gets even better. The authorities decided they needed to shut him up. He was going everywhere and preaching about Jesus. They've got to stop this man. So um, he was in jail various times. And uh, at the last time, they, they told him... Uh, you're going to have to deny Christ or we're going to lop off your head. He did not deny Christ, and they cut off his head. Now, why am I telling you that? Why why did I say it gets even better and and then tell you that? Uh, Here's why. Um, Who do you believe, the person who dies for their story or the person who denies their story when the gun is held to their head? Believe the man who dies for his story. He was so sure of this that he said, I'm sorry, I cannot deny it. You're just going to have to go ahead and lop off my head. 
Why did Elise Strobel turn from an angry husband to a believer in the Lord Jesus? And, and why did Saul of Tarsus turn and become the greatest foe and even advocate and even give his life for the gospel? Here's why. I'll put this on the screen. They discovered rational, logical, compelling reasons for believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were not stupid. Theirs was not some kind of dumb, blind faith. They found rational, logical, compelling reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to give you a lot of examples, but we don't have time for a lot of examples, so I'm going to give you a few examples of the kinds of things that Dr. Lee Strobel discovered in his year and seven months of studying about the resurrection and the claims of Christ. First, I'm going to talk to you now about the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Now, you need to understand something. This is no exaggeration. Biblical Christianity is an absolutely unique religion in that, unlike all other religions on the planet, it is rooted in an event, a historical event. All other religions are rooted in somebody had a teaching. And biblical Christianity certainly has teaching, but it's rooted in an event. And if the event happened, you can believe the teaching. And if the event did not happen, then you can throw away the teaching. It's all rooted in an event. And the event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the empty tomb. If the tomb was not empty, all the authorities had to do was show the body of Jesus. They desperately wanted to stop the faith. They desperately wanted to stop Christianity. They persecuted Christians. They put them in jail. They killed some of them. Uh, they had a nationwide purge of Christians one time, nationwide. Um, why didn't they just present the body out of the tomb? All they needed to do was you know, maybe say, all right, look, y'all know where we buried him, right? It's down at the end of 42nd Street. Two o'clock today, we're going to roll back the stone. You can get up in a big, long line, and you can look in, and you'll see Jesus is in the tomb. Christianity would have stopped in its tracks. Biblical Christianity is rooted in a historical event that could be validated in that day and in our day by history. Why didn't Rome produce the body? Why didn't the Jewish leaders produce the body and stop Christianity in its tracks? There's only one reasonable answer. They did not have the body. They lost track of that body. They needed that body. They wanted that body. They placed a guard at the tomb and the seal of Rome on the stone so that nobody would get that body. They wanted that body. They lost that body. Well, there are various theories of what happened. There's, there's the swoon theory. Jesus didn't really die. He just swooned, and he woke up inside the tomb and decided, oh, hey, I'm in a tomb. I want to get out of here. And somehow he moved the stone, and somehow he got past the Roman guards, and somehow he got away, and that's why they didn't have the body. Yeah, I don't believe that, um, and I don't think you do either. Another theory is that the disciples came and stole the body at night. Yeah, but there's the Roman guard, they have spears and all that stuff, and there's the big stone and the seal of, of Rome. Plus, these are the guys who were cowering and denying Christ just a couple of nights before. Peter's swearing and saying, I'm not one of his followers. I don't know him. They hardly seem like the kind of stuff that's going to go up against a Roman guard and steal a body out of a tomb. There are all these different theories that, that people have come up with, but none of them, none of them uh, hold any weight. There's something wrong with all of them. One thing you can be absolutely sure of is this. On the third day, that tomb was empty. Jesus' body was gone. Now, in addition to that, 
there were also, there were then, reliable eyewitness accounts of people saying, we saw Jesus alive. There were not one, not several, but many reliable eyewitness accounts. So, example, uh, Peter says, he's preaching to 2,000 people when he says this, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So, you've got to imagine this, that Jerusalem was a buzz. The place was on fire because everybody's talking. There were all these people who saw Jesus alive, and the Romans didn't say, no, 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 come see, here's the body. And the Jewish authorities didn't say, no, 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 come see, here's the body. The body was gone, and people were saying, we saw him alive again. The place was a buzz so that, so that he, Peter's able to say to a, a group of 2,000, look, we are witnesses of this. Uh, Again, he says in Acts chapter 3, And you, the Jewish people, killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. There were people alive in that city saying, We saw him, and that's why the tomb is empty. The Apostle Paul um, gives his account of, of the appearances of Christ after his resurrection. And Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. One of the theories of what went wrong is, well, the people who think they saw Jesus were hallucinating. All right, this would be a 500-people mass hallucination. That's never happened in human history. People don't do that. Uh, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. The point is, you don't take my word, go ask. Go down to Jerusalem and start asking people because the whole city went crazy over this thing. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. I became an apostle late. I became an apostle when I saw Jesus late. After he'd already gone to heaven, he came back down just to appear to me. I was one born into the apostleship out of sequence, out of due time. But Paul says, we have these witnesses And you and I today, I'll put this up as a slide for you, we have absolutely reliable copies of their eyewitness accounts. Now, here's something you need to understand. Here's something I want to talk to you about. Uh, You've heard it said that, uh, you know, the story, that whatever really happened back then has been changed and changed and changed and changed and changed. So who really knows what what was said or done back then? Uh, The lady who used to cut my hair, I say used to because they're closed and I need a haircut. And what does one do to get a haircut nowadays? Debbie's been wanting me to grow it longer. Maybe it's just good. Yeah, or maybe I buzz this time, huh? How many, we want to vote for that? No? All right. Um, anyway, the lady that used to cut my hair and will when, I, when life comes back to normal, I hope, um, we talk a lot. We're both extroverted. We're, we both like to talk a lot. And it's a fun time to go get a haircut and get to engage her in conversation. And it always turns to spiritual things. She knows I'm a Christian. She knows I'm a pastor. And uh, uh, two haircuts ago, she said to me, uh, how can we really know if there was a Jesus or what he really said anyway? Because hasn't it been changed and changed? And There are all these new translations. Doesn't it change every time? And I got to tell her, no, actually, that is not at all how it works. Here's what happened. Uh, the original eyewitnesses wrote things down, and others made careful copies of those, and they made careful copies of those, and they made careful copies of those, and we have a whole pile of those early, early, early copies that were very close to the original, 
And when we make a new translation now, we don't take like the previous one and change it a little. We go back to those Greek manuscripts, those almost the original copies, and we make a fresh translation from those. She said, oh, I didn't know that. So I want you to know we have absolutely reliable copies of their eyewitness accounts. In fact, here's a a statement that I think is, is not extreme. No other ancient documents are so well attested, so carefully preserved, and passed down to us as the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection. To give you an example, uh, a scholar, Daryl Bach, says, We have over 5,800 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, over 8,000 Latin manuscripts. They translated it into other languages, especially into Latin, way back there. And most books that we work with in the ancient world have maybe a dozen manuscripts from back there. So the New Testament became incredibly, reliably translated into other languages and trans, um, passed down to us in our day. But then somebody says, okay, how do we know somebody way back then didn't just make up the whole thing? All right, that's a fair question. And there are several answers, but here's the best one, I think. Many, 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 many of them gave their lives for the faith. They were martyred for their claims. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you like being alive? You like being alive? Kind of nice being alive, right? How many of you kids in the chairs like being alive? You like being alive? Yeah, nice being alive, huh? By the way, kids, thank you. I love it. You should see yourselves all sitting in there with little crayon faces and stuff. But we like being alive. So suppose you told a lie. Suppose you lied to mommy. No, that wouldn't be a good example. Let me pick a different one. Suppose suppose you told a lie and and you said, um, you know, I I can fly. I can just jump up in the air and and fly. And and somebody gets mad at you for telling that lie. And they get their Glock 17 and they hold it to their head. They go, hold it to your head. And they say, "Um, deny that story or I am pulling the trigger. What do you do? You like being alive. You say, ha ha, that story? I was just kidding. Oh, that story? No, no, I, I don't know what I was thinking. That never really happened. Okay, and they take the gun away and you live. They said to Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian, Deny the faith or we're going to burn you. Deny the faith or we're going to stick you with spears. Deny the faith or we're throwing you in with lions. Deny the faith or we're hanging you up on pikes and lighting you on fire. Deny, 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 deny. And Christian after Christian after Christian said, we can't deny, it's true. We know. Many of them were eyewitnesses and they were martyred for their claims. Peter was crucified upside down. The, The tradition tells us, They wanted to crucify him because he wouldn't deny Christ, but he said, I'm not worthy to be killed like my Savior was killed. Do it upside down. And he gave his life that way. Andrew was crucified. Thomas received the spears of four soldiers. All he had to do was say, no, no, I don't really believe that story. James was stoned and clubbed to death. Matthias was burned to death. He was burned to death couldn't deny the story. Only the Apostle John avoided being a martyr, although tradition tells us he was actually boiled in oil and somehow survived it and then became a recluse on the Isle of, I believe the Isle of Patmos. In every case, all they had to do was say, ha ha, just kidding. I don't really believe those fairy tales. To a man, the apostles stuck with their word. 
There's more. There are many good reasons to believe, but let me give you this one. Only the resurrection of Jesus Christ explains the impossible, unbelievable, miraculous spread of Christianity. Here's what I mean. Back in the Greco-Roman world, what was the dominant religion? And it was very dominant. It was everywhere. You had to be part of it. You're not going to be in a trade guild if you're not part of it. You won't be liked in the community if you're not part of it. What was the dominant religion? It was idolatries, most specifically emperor worship. Now, there were Jewish people who didn't participate. They were given a pass. They all had an agreement, but they had their dominant religion as well. But in the nation, in the Gentile world, the dominant religion was and had been idolatry for a long, long time, for centuries. And it was deeply woven into the fiber of everybody's daily lives. There were temples everywhere. There were idols everywhere. You had idols in your home. Uh, You offered things to idols. It was just part of life that was entrenched in their culture for centuries. All right? Along comes an unknown, uneducated, traveling Jewish rabbi who was poor, He never wrote any books. He uh, never graduated from any of the fine schools. He uh, only had what he was wearing on his body when he died. And he was crucified. And then his followers claim he rose. And within not much time at all, idolatry was gone. It was gone. It had been entrenched in that culture for centuries it was gone. How do you explain Christianity spreading so powerfully that idolatry, the, the Roman religion, was gone? How did, how did the gospel wipe out idolatry? Cosmologists in our day look at the universe and say, well, we can't see the cause. We can't look back there, but we can see an effect here. It's spreading like crazy, and they reason backwards from the effect back to a cause, the Big Bang. We have to have a Big Bang to explain this spreading universe. Christianity spread like wildfire. Now, from where we are, we can look back. We can't really see. We weren't there to see Jesus in his, bo- in his physical body after he had been crucified and raised again. We weren't there, but we can sure see uh, an effect. What was the cause that made Christianity spread like mad and overtake centuries of entrenched idolatry in Roman culture? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the Big Bang that changed the Roman world. There's a man named Ken Curtis. He has a Ph.D. in communications and an honorary doctorate from a seminary. He's a historian, and he writes, and I'll put it on the screen for you. It was unthinkable that a small, despised movement from a corner of Palestine could move out to become the dominant faith of the mighty Roman Empire an empire steeped in fiercely defended traditional pagan religions. The spread of the Christian church, he writes, in its earliest centuries is one of the most amazing phenomena in all of human history. The church was considered a religio prava, an illegal and depraved religion. Wave after wave of persecution was unleashed to squash it. At least two of the persecutions were empire-wide and intended to destroy the church. How did this young fledgling movement make it? What was the Big Bang? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
If you want to know more, I want to encourage you to either get in touch with us, and I'll tell you in a few minutes how you can do that, or just go to Amazon in a minute here and buy yourself a copy of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Um, but try and do it husband and wife together so no one gets mad when the other one becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus, all right? I'm going to wrap up. Those are the words people always like when the preacher says it's time to wrap up. So wrapping up, maybe some of you are thinking, you know, I've been wondering if, if I shouldn't get closer to God. You're thinking uh, maybe this whole thing about Jesus, maybe it's real. Maybe when you hear about it, you, you kind of feel a tug. like, man, I, I want to believe what they do. I want to have the kind of faith they do. I need God in my life like they do. Maybe you're considering the, the claims of Christ. I have just a few things I want to say to you, specifically to you. And here's the first one, and they'll appear on the screen for you. Number one, I want you to know being a follower of Jesus Christ does not require you to park your brain. Uh, I'm not on Facebook, but I, I am on Twitter, and I follow some people on Twitter. And this morning, a, a professor of physics, of nuclear physics at MIT, posted that he is a believer in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and here's why. And he, he knows many other colleagues in his field who also believe. Uh, you do not have to park your brain and put, your, put it in neutral somewhere to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, being a follower of Jesus Christ is not about a bunch of rules. It's not about, but there are some rules, but it's not about the rules. It's about a relationship. It's about knowing someone, the God who made you, Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you, who was raised for you. You get to know him. You fall in love with him. You get to do life with him and his people. It's not about a bunch of rules. It's about a relationship, and the relationship is good. A third thing I want to say directly to you, being a follower of Jesus Christ is not about becoming a good person. Hopefully, as you follow Jesus, it'll make you a better person, but it's not about, oh, I have to try really hard then and really clean up my act and, and really be a good moral upstanding person and really work on my ethics and live with integrity, and then I'll be a good person. There's only one good person in the whole story, and he's the one who died on the cross. All the rest of us are a mess and a wreck, and we're twisted, and we're fallen, and we're sinners, and what we become when we follow Christ is forgiven. You find forgiveness in the, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Number four, then I'll be done. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is about faith and repentance. Now, faith, as I hope you've noticed in this message, faith is not, okay, there's no reasons for this, but I'm just going to stick my head in the sand and believe it anyway because I want to. That It's not blind faith. Faith is based on evidence and documents that have been passed to us and people who have studied history and tell us this is reliable. These are good, these are good and reliable documents. Uh, it, it's based on facts that come to us from eyewitnesses who saw Jesus rise from the dead. Um, faith is saying, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe you're the Savior that I need. I believe you died on the cross and paid for my sins. I believe you rose for my justification, and I'm calling upon you now in faith. Would you be my Savior? And then there's also repentance. What is repentance? It's a very big word. It's a rather big word for a very simple term. It simply means you turn. 
You believe on the Lord Jesus and you turn to Him. You turn away from your own way and your own life and being your own God, and you turn that He would become God to you. So you say, Lord Jesus, I believe, and I want to follow you. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my God. I hope you'll do that, and I hope you'll do it with me right now as I lead us in prayer. Would you bow with me, please, and we'll pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us to this time and this place and each one of us in our homes and wherever we are. And there are probably some people listening in with us right now who are feeling it in their hearts. I need to get closer to God, and I know I need the the Lord Jesus to be my Savior. Father, would you put it in their hearts right now? Would you pour out the Holy Spirit of redemption upon them, and would you turn them to yourself? And may they pray something like, and the words don't matter, the heart does, Lord Jesus, I've been going my own way. And I'm a fallen sinner, but I know you're a gracious Savior. Please, would you save me? Please, Lord Jesus, would you have mercy upon, upon a sinner like me? I'm turning to you now. I want to follow you now. I want you, be, you to be the master and the Lord of my life now. And Father, we pray. That, that people who just prayed that prayer, that they would mean it in their hearts, and that they would become new creatures in Christ, and that they would follow him all the rest of their days and find everlasting life in him at the last day. Thank you for all the believers who have gathered together all over the planet today to especially remember the resurrection of our Savior. We pray for the believers that this will be a day of rejoicing and gladness, a day of feasting our souls upon the goodness of God, given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.